This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. I really do appreciate that. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I will be your ruggedly handsome host as we dive into this week's topic. Now, we're going to actually be starting a brief, probably two-week series today on economic models. Now, this is something I actually was part of the purpose of the podcast originally was to kind of talk about not only current events, but also kind of political science theory so that if an event does crop up in the future that I don't necessarily cover, the theory can help explain what's going on. And this is something that's actually been in the news a lot recently, particularly here in the United States, but also around the world, and that's uh, economic models. And so and primarily we're talking you know, capitalism versus socialism. That's been a big debate here in the United States where I live, but also obviously it's been something that's been discussed around the world, uh, especially with regards to the rise of Russia again. And so we're going to be talking about the different types of economic models that are out there. There's actually four major ones that I want to touch on. This is why it's going to be a two-week series. We're going to cover two of them today, and then we'll do two next week. And while I do this, just understand, too, that while there are four major models that we're going to be talking about, there are obviously spinoffs and variations of all of them, so that you could probably come up with thousands of potential models that all have varying different nuances and that sort of thing. Uh, but we're going to be focusing on the four main ones, and I'll probably cover one spinoff next week, and that's uh, democratic socialism, which has been in the news more recently uh, here in the United States with people like Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, that specific kind of spinoff of socialism and what that actually looks like and whether or not it actually matches what uh, Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez actually say it does. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, But we're going to be focusing on four major models. So capitalism and socialism, and we're actually going to do those two next week because I think they pair nicely together. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, two other models, one that you don't see as much anymore, and that's something called mercantilism or mercantilism. And then we're going to be talking about state capitalism. And state capitalism, despite the name, it's not actually really a spinoff of capitalism. It's kind of a hybrid of capitalism and socialism, but it's one that's uh, that's new and it's it's got it's new enough and variant enough from the others that it actually cl- classifies as its own system now. And it's it you don't see it very often, but you do see it crop up in a couple cases, primarily in China right now. And so we're going to be talking about uh, state capitalism today as well. Now, before we dive too far into this, I do want to put a couple of caveats on this. Uh, first is that obviously these are very complicated economic models, and I'm not going to be covering nearly even a fraction of all of them in these you know, 10 to 15 minute bl- blurbs on each. Uh, so do understand that while I'm hoping to give a broad overview of what they are and what they look like, and maybe some of the consequences of them, and even some examples of countries that use them, there are way more nuances to each of them than I will ever get to. Uh, and so just keep that in mind that if I leave out something from the model, that's not necessarily intentional, but it is expected just just because of the nature of these things. I could probably do 
full episodes for you know a couple months on each individual one and still not cover everything. The second is that I try to make this podcast, I've talked about this in the past, I try to make this podcast uh, fairly nonpartisan. Uh, obviously, my views occasionally slip through, but I do try to treat all issues fairly. And so I will be approaching these topics from a, a very neutral third-party perspective, which means I will try to talk about both the good and the, and the bad of each topic. Obviously, there are some models that I believe work better than others, uh, but I will try to keep it as, as neutral as I can on this. Um, now, that said, that doesn't mean I won't uh, pick holes in some of the, the models if, if I see fit, or even poke fun at some of the politicians who may be proposing some of the models. But it's not out of any sort of partisanship that I'm doing so. It's mostly due to holes that I see in their logic or just obvious flaws in their potential model that kind of stand out. Uh, so just be aware of that. But I, I am going to try to keep this as nonpartisan as I can. But with that, uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the two models that I have on tap for today. Uh, so we're going to be talking, as I said, about two main models today. The first of which is called mercantilism or mercantilism or mercantilism. Uh, you'll hear it referenced a couple different ways, pronounced different uh, variations on that, but I'm going to be using mercantilism. Uh, that's the way I was kind of taught. Uh, and so we're going to be focusing on, on them first. Now, mercantilism is actually kind of an older model. It's not one you see nearly as common today, but it was pretty dominant back in the day, particularly in like the 16th century through the 18th century in Europe. Uh, we see it pretty common in um, early America. This is was, this was actually probably the model that the United States used in its very early years. And basically, this is a, a national model that's really designed to maximize the exporting of nations. And so the goal here with mercantilism is mostly to find ways to become rich, to amass wealth through trade. And so it's very heavily focused on exporting more than importing. It's often considered kind of an outdated system for a variety of reasons, but it was the main school of economic thought for centuries. And this is also very, very common in kind of new countries that are trying to develop and really pushes for growing the wealth of a country internally. And it was actually the push behind a lot of, say, the exploration of new lands, uh, a lot of the wars that took place kind of in that time period. And it was really a move away from agriculture as kind of an economic base. So before this, most economies were built kind of around the concept of agriculture, uh, an, ag an agricultural economy, growing your own items. But this actually really kind of pushed the idea of trade and finding ways to build wealth through trade. And so what they would do is they would actually have some government regulation of a lot of, say, commercial interests in the country. And they would really focus pretty heavily on exporting but tax any sort of imports very heavily in order to protect domestic industries and allow them to grow, allow them to develop. And this is actually something that we see a little bit in, or variations of, I should say, in some developing countries today, maybe even in Africa and uh, some smaller countries in Asia potentially are using mercantilism. And the idea here is that they're trying to develop their own economies internally. And so they tax, pretty heavily tax, any sort of imports coming in in order to protect those domestic industries and allow them to grow. But they also focus very heavily on exporting in order to bring in money that can help develop their economy. And so policies under 
a mercantilist economy, uh, which again was kind of the dominant ideology of Europe during the kind of 15th, 16th century up through the 18th century. A lot of policies that you would see come out of this are things like very high tariffs, so very high taxes. Uh, if they had colonies, this was during the colonization era. So if you had colonies, the colonies were not allowed to trade with other countries. You only benefited the, the host country. Uh, you would have the banning of exporting of gold and silver. Gold and silver was seen as highly, highly valuable then, as, as it obviously is still today. But it was there was a lot of trying to amass some of these precious metals. And so they would refuse to export gold and silver, even in, in form of payment. They would limit wages, provide subsidies on exports. Uh, they would try to maximize any sort of domestic resources that they had. And they really were not very cooperative with other countries. For instance, uh, trade was not allowed to be carried on foreign ships. There was something called the Navigation Acts that, that banned that. And we saw this across a lot of Europe. Mercantilism was common in France as soon as the early 16th century, which is kind of right around the time of the monarchy that become kind of the dominant political force in French politics. So there were a lot of kind of protectionist measures that were put into place in France over the rest of that 16th century. Great Britain also underwent a lot of mercantile policies being enacted. The Netherlands did as well. It was very common in kind of Central Europe. Scandinavia embraced a lot of these mercantilist policies. Spain benefited from it pretty early on because they were really focused on bringing in a lot of precious metals of gold and silver, which they gained from kind of their territories in the New World and their colonies. And a lot of this is based around kind of an economic version of the divine right of kings and monarchies. And so the idea of like monarchies being the kind of divine right from God of being you know, put into place by some sort of divine power, mercantilism is kind of the economic counterpart of that kind of older version where it was seen as, you know, we need to do everything we can to amass wealth and we have the right to do so through colonies and these types of things. And this actually led to a lot of wars over this. It actually can be directly linked to mercantilist theories, including some of the Anglo-Dutch wars, the Franco-Dutch wars, and a lot of the establishment of colonies by European powers, uh, which really spurred on this development of, of mercantile theory. And there's a lot of theories as to why mercantilism dominated for so long. I mean, we're talking it was the, the dominant economic ideology in the, the then modern world for 250 years or more. But most of the theories all kind of link around this idea that it really developed at a time of major transition for the European economy. At the time, you had a lot of kind of isolated feudal estate systems that were set up across Europe that kind of ran things almost autonomously from one another. There weren't really things that you think of as countries today, but they were slowly being replaced by these nation states as kind of the, how power was built. Prior to this, it was mostly kind of local warlords or feudal estates, um, local lords on their property that kind of ran things. But the nation state or the country was slowly starting to take hold and kind of uh, replace a lot of these kind of isolated estates. And so the economy was changing as well as they were moving away from individual estate by estate to country level type of, of economies. And then also at the same time, you had kind of transitions in a lot of the technology that was going on, technological changes in shipping. You had kind of the growth of cities and urban centers, which allowed for trade at a much higher uh, rate. You also had um, modern accounting te techniques that were kind of developed all around the same time period. 
And so there was this huge scrutiny that was really thrown into, into place here where they were focusing very heavily on how we, can we balance trade in a way that benefits us. And on top of this too, this is around the same time period that the discovery of America was made, right? So the, that was obviously 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that whole famous thing. But kind of over the next century or so, we saw them trying to develop, these European powers trying to develop their land and territory in the Americas. And so this was new markets, new resources, new mining that propelled foreign trade to, to heights that had never been seen before. And so it's simply the the volume of trade and merchant activity just skyrocketed. And so this all played into the idea of mercantilism, of how can we use these new things to try to benefit us? Well, there's, like I said, there's a lot of theories as to kind of why this took root and, and why it lasted for as long as it did. But most of it kind of really builds around these major upheaval and changes to the political system and the economic system of Europe, the discovery of America, the new technologies that all played into a massive ups, upswing, a massive spike, maybe even in terms of international trade and the ability to trade uh, more, more or less. Now, mercantilism is also very much a zero-sum game. So it's it lends itself very much to, to ruthlessness in politics. We also saw the adoption of kind of Machiavellian principles during this time period. People like Thomas Hobbes and their ideas came along here. Was, there was a very kind of dark view of what human nature was really all about. And so it became very as I said, ruthless and focused on how can we benefit ourselves first and primarily. And this actually fit a lot into the, some of the religious ideas at the time too, uh, particularly like the Puritans were really big at this time period and they had a very kind of dark view of human nature. That was why they needed a savior, why they needed God and Jesus to, to come in and save them. They saw humanity as very, very dark. And so this also kind of fit into that idea as well. Uh, and so there were some economic theorists who, who basically used and manipulated some of the Puritan ideas to try to, to justify some of their ideas about trade and amassing wealth. And of course, when you throw in some of the political ideas that were kind of circulating at the time with Machiavelli and rail politique and the ideas of power politics, this was a very appealing idea of amassing wealth and bringing in gold and silver and exporting a lot of goods without bringing in a lot of things. Uh, it made a lot of sense at the time. But over time, we've kind of seen a lot of critiques of this come up. And as I said, it's kind of seen as outdated at this point. A number of scholars were pointing out flaws in this long before Adam Smith came along. But Adam Smith and David Hume were kind of the founding fathers of what you might consider anti-mercantilist ideas and theory and thought. And others, John Locke, um, Dudley North, some of these other theorists on the at, the at the time in economics were very critical of mercantile theory. And so in particular, there were a couple of criticisms that came along. First is uh, John Locke actually argued that prices vary in proportion to the quantity of money. So it's way more complicated than simply amassing wealth. And Locke also points out some of the other major problems with mercantile theory, basically that the idea, uh, he, he doesn't believe that the wealth is a zero-sum game. And this is something that's really come about, especially in the 20th and 21st century now as well. But the wealth of the world is not fixed. We can actually grow the wealth of the world through human labor. In other words, uh, Locke had this whole thing of the labor theory of value that 
the economic value of a good or a service is determined by the amount of labor required to produce it. And so mercantile theory had kind of failed to look at this. They basically thought all the wealth in the world was fixed and static and you couldn't really change how much total wealth the world had. And so if I had, so if I gained wealth, that meant necessarily someone else was losing wealth. And we found that's not really necessarily the case and that through kind of the reciprocal benefits of trade, both countries could end up better off. And this is the whole idea of trade is particularly say if, if one country specializes in good A and, and the second country specializes in good B, both states could end up better off if they traded with one another. And so by this kind of reciprocal ben benefit, you can actually increase the quote unquote wealth or value of both countries. And so most modern economic theory really hits hard at mercantile ideas and saying that it's not a zero-sum game. You don't need to be as ruthless or cutthroat as we thought we needed to because it, there are ways for both sides to benefit from this. And so over time, mercantile theory has kind of diminished, um, actually to the point where you don't really see much of it anymore as it kind of was replaced by what's known as classical economics and Adam Smith's ideas, uh, Adam Smith's uh, The Wealth of Nations, which was a book he published actually back in 1776. But uh, it actually, over time, kind of started to replace what was seen as mercantile theory. And over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, it pretty much vanished and was replaced with the kind of laissez-faire economics. Now, as I, as I did mention, we do see bits and pieces of mercantile theory still today. It's actually, there's something called neo-mercantilism, which is very similar ideas. And it's basically this idea of encouraging exports, discouraging imports, and kind of centralizing currency in a kind of a, a central federal government, which can increase the overall wealth. And we do still see this type of economic model occur in certain countries, uh, mostly countries that need to develop still. They're kind of still undergoing development and trying to create rapid economic growth. But mostly speaking, mercantile theory or mercantilism or mercantilism, however you want to pronounce it, it has largely been considered outdated. And so while it is, it was a major model for a very, very long time, we really only see fractions of it that still exist today. Now we're going to take a short commercial break and then we're going to jump in and talk about state capitalism, which is kind of the, the new model that's come about uh, just in the last few decades or so. And so we'll talk a little bit about that one and then we'll close out the episode. And next week we'll jump into capitalism and socialism. So stick with me through the short commercial break and I'll be back with you guys in just about a minute. All right, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. We're going to go ahead and jump into the next economic model that I want to talk about, uh, and that is something called state capitalism. Now, this is actually a model, I kind of mentioned before the break, it, it's really a new model. That's not 100% true. We actually do see its roots going back as far as you know the late 1800s, and some of the, the early analysis of kind of the Soviet Union in the early 1900s as well, employed some variations of state capitalism, and it's been used to describe a lot of various socialist, uh, Marxist, Leninist ideas over the years. But the reason I talk about it as being a relatively new model is because of the modern form that it's taken in what most people think of as the economy of China right now, uh, mainland China. Now, in terms of definition, 
State capitalism is a little bit trickier, uh, and there's actually a couple different definitions you might come across. We're going to be focusing on one of them, but this is basically the idea that the state, as in the government itself, starts undertaking some sort of for-profit economic activity, basically taking over the means of production, uh, organizing and managing business as a state-owned enterprise. And that would include wage labor, centralized management, uh, that those sorts of things where basically there is government agencies that have been corporatized into corporations that make money. Now, a lot of people will try to basically argue that state capitalism is about capitalism, but with state control. And this is basically where the government controls the economy, uh, acts like a single, it's like a one big corporation. Just as, as in a kind of a humorous example of this, if anybody in here has seen the movie WALL-E, I know this sounds funny, but it's uh, the Pixar movie by Disney where you have the robot in space. But if you pay attention to like the, the economy of that governing governance system, you know, it's essentially the government is a corporation, that company, uh, I think it's called by and large, right? Uh, and so basically in this movie, the by and large corporation acts as kind of the de facto government that's in place during the movie Wally. Um, you know, this is kind of, after the evacuation of Earth and they're in space on the spaceship and whatever. Uh, and so I know that's kind of a, a humorous example of this, but it's it's that kind of model. That's a little bit of an extreme version of it, but where the kind of government and corporate element is so blended that you can't always see the difference between them. Now, one of the reasons that some people try to argue that this is kind of a hybrid between capitalism and socialism or whatever you want to call it, is that state capitalism, the means of production can be owned privately by individuals or smaller businesses, but the state has massive control over them through regulation, investment, credit, these types of things, to the point where that private ownership may become fairly meaningless or in name only. In other words, the, the idea of it is that while the workers or the individuals may have technically ownership, they don't meaningfully control any sort of production elements or profit or anything that occurs within the overall system. Now, as I said, we've kind of seen bits and pieces of this over the years. State capitalism has been used by socialist groups for, for many, many years, including the Soviet Union was frequently referenced as this, kind of the Russian communist left, various Marxist groups, the Trotskys, uh, be Leon Trotsky, a lot of Maoist groups, kind of the Communist Party of China back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They would often refer to their country as well as uh, the Soviet Union as kind of a state capitalist in, in a Marxist sense. And we've also heard it used probably um, hyperbolically to describe any sort of overreach by government, even in Western countries, uh, where you say the government, I'll use the United States as an example, where the government gets so involved in business that they offer massive bailouts uh, to businesses that they choose, and that could be seen as state control. And so we've seen that that's a little bit of a stretch, but that type of idea has been used over the years uh, to, to explore the concepts of state capitalism. Now, the reason I talk about it as being a much more modern idea is because in more recent years, we have seen really two countries kind of embrace this, in particular one that I'm going to talk about, and that's China. But we also see 
uh, Russia having embraced kind of a state capitalism form again. Now, before I get too far down that road, I want to talk a little bit about some of the implications of this theory. The basic idea here is that you get a very close relationship between large corporations and government to the point, again, where I kind of said this with Wally, is the line kind of blurs between them. Very close partnership. And basically, the government is providing the framework, both kind of socially and legally, for corporations to operate. And this is why it's, it's a very tricky thing to define, because that's obviously a very large gray area and a spectrum where where do you draw the line on that? Uh, it's a very fuzzy line. But in more modern times, we really see it emerge. And this is where I really want to focus for the rest of this episode on China. Uh, China has been kind of seen as the main, if not the only, example of state capitalism the 21st century uh ian bremer who's a pretty famous political scientist wrote an entire book on kind of what he could, the book was called the end of the free market uh, who wins the war between states and corporations but basically he talks about china as kind of that primary driver for the the rise of modern state capitalism to challenge the free market economies uh, and this was written in 2010 so we're talking after the big financial crisis of the late uh, 2000s decade and Brummer actually goes farther than China, too. He talks about Russia as being an example of this. He mentions Venezuela uh, in addition, which obviously we've seen a lot of issues in Venezuela over the last year or so. So uh, that's been a really interesting addition that he included about a decade ago into this, this model. Now, state capitalism can actually take the form of a couple different ways. Uh, it can take the form of regulation, in particular, like very heavy regulation from government on corporations in which they again they don't necessarily own the corporations but because there's so much regulation on it they essentially control any sort of decision making and the means of production they organize all of it they manage the enterprises they manage the corporations through regulation alternatively you could also have a situation and this is one that's a little bit more controversial but say like norway today where the government of norway actually has ownership stake in a lot of the country's various public companies. So uh, in Norway, they act, the government actually owns 37% of the stock market in Oslo. And they actually operate some of the largest non-listed companies there as well, including a major oil company. And so you have kind of that type of state capitalism as well. Now, I think, this is me personally, I'm not sure I would classify Norway quite this way. Uh, but they do show a lot of elements of this with how much state control they do have over over their means of production and, and businesses and corporations in the area, and in particular in their um, their oil reserves. Now, other countries where you might see this pop up right now, uh, Singapore. Uh, Singapore, their government owns controlling shares in a lot of different companies that are linked directly through, through the government. Uh, Taiwan, which is technically kind of a part of China, but they're also like a semi-autonomous, actually largely autonomous country in and of themselves. So their economy has been sometimes called state capitalist because of this kind of the decision making uh, where the state owns several of their enterprises as well. But mostly when we talk state capitalism today, we're talking China. Oh, I, I should mention also too, Russia has embraced a lot of these as well. I've mentioned them briefly a couple of times, but uh, Russia also is kind of on this model, but China is kind of the major example of this today. Uh, and actually an analysis of this, the Chinese model right now has shown some really interesting things because a lot of times we think of them as being like pure socialist, uh, communist, right? This is how we think of China. But the truth is their system is is much more state capitalist than kind of 
socialist. And the, the reason for this is because of the idea of financial markets. So financial markets are basically a, um, it's, it's where people trade financial securities, financial derivatives at kind of low, very low costs. So this would include things like stocks and bonds, and uh, you can trade on precious metals and gold and silver and things like this. And that's not really a part of what you think of as socialism economies. And so the fact that these financial markets exist to such an extent that they do, and on top of that too, that the state profits in China, so the profits that go from these corporations to the state are not distributed among the population like you would typically see as kind of like a basic level of income or some sort of similar schematic, which again would be very socialistic, but they actually are retained by the enterprises. And so they, China is kind of in this weird state where there's a very heavy market socialism, but they've also kind of embraced some of the, the capitalist models. And in fact, what you'll hear sometimes people describe state capitalism as is socialism at the local level through heavy interference, oppression, influence, regulation, which can sometimes manifest itself in oppression on political freedoms and civil rights and things like that too. But domestically, we're talking very heavy regulation and socialist ideas, but much more capitalist at the international level in terms of international trade, which allows them to compete more on the global stage. And the idea here is they want to try to benefit from, glo from world globalization and benefit from the global market, but still maintain kind of a stability at the individual and local level through state control. And so most of their like domestic economic models are, are heavy, heavy state controlled, even over manufacturing and exporting and, and things like this and, and domestic issues. But their international policies show much more capitalistic models. As I said, this is a relatively new model. Uh, we've like, seen some of it over the last century, but uh, in Russia a little bit, but really China is the one that's embraced it so much more drastically uh, and really only in the last few decades or so. Uh, so this is this is kind of a weird little model. Uh, we're, it hasn't been around long enough to find out kind of long-term implications of it. I think we can kind of look at it and, and find some critiques here and there particularly on the, the the heavy interference and regulation and oppression that takes place at kind of the local stage. China is well known for their oppressive techniques and tactics on the local individual level. But the way that they have tried to merge and almost hybridize that regulation with international trade is, is kind of interesting. And it will be something that we'll need to be keeping a close eye on because uh, at least in the short run, China's economy has, has kind of skyrocketed late, lately. I think I mentioned this uh, previous episode, I forget which one, but I talked about the idea that China has passed the United States in terms of its total GDP uh, just recently. Now, that does not mean they are a stronger economy than the United States because their per capita GDP is still much lower because they have such a high population. But we have seen their economy growing in part due to this, this model, this kind of Chinese model of state capitalism. Uh, it kind of remains to be seen whether or not they can maintain it long term. And personally, I have some um, skepticism, let's, let's call it heavy skepticism of this model uh, for a variety of reasons, particularly in the way that they they handle things on the domestic level. But uh, it is kind of a fascinating and unusual hybrid that we don't really see very often, uh, particularly when you kind of get into more of a broad definition and you start to include countries like Norway or Singapore, which are not quite as 
as oppressive as say the Chinese model is, but but still have heavy ownership stakes in a lot of their companies by the government of those countries. Uh, and so this is a model that I think we'll be needing to investigate a lot more with going forward. It doesn't have nearly the, the history that some of the other models do, but it is a unusual hybridization of a couple different ones and uh, is something that, for the moment anyway, seems to be working well for China, at least kind of at the international level, maybe not at the domestic level. We'll kind of have to wait and see how that plays out. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. I think um, next time we're going to actually dive into the two models that state capitalism is kind of a hybrid of. We'll talk about capitalism or sometimes called economic liberalism. And we'll talk about socialism and kind of what both of those two models are and what they, they look like and some of their implications as well. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. So thanks so much for uh, tuning in and listening to this week's episode of Nutshell Politics. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in getting in contact with me to talk about this or any other topic or to give me ideas for future topics or or to advertise on the podcast, if you're interested in supporting me or supporting the podcast, you can always reach out to me. I have a couple different ways to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. You can find me, hit that follow button, please. And uh, again, I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others with you at that time. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well. I have an author page on that. I write fiction mystery novels, so I have two novels out, both on Amazon, but I write under the name J. Robert Kinney, which is my middle name, obviously. And so uh, you can find my author page on there. Now, that page is mostly going to be updates about my writing, but uh, also very willing to chat with you there about anything else as well, including the podcast. So, so find that Facebook page and hit that subscribe button. I'd really appreciate it as well. Again, as I said, if you're interested in supporting the podcast or supporting me in any way, uh, you can reach out to me in, in those forums, talk about advertising or anything like that. I also have a Patreon account online if you're interested in, in checking that out as well. Uh, so with that, though, we're going to go ahead and shut things down. So I really appreciate you guys tuning in this week. And don't forget to tune back in next week for the exciting finale of this little mini series, and we'll do capitalism versus socialism. Uh, until next time, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kenny, and I am out in three, two, one.